0: Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm really excited to share today's interview with you uh, that I just concluded with Dr. Sean McDowell. Before I go into his bio, I want to take a moment to thank you all so much for leaving ratings and reviews on iTunes. That's helped our podcast reach more people also for subscribing on YouTube and liking and commenting. That again helps with engagement. Also the people that take the time, you people, the one, those of you that take the time to screenshot a favorite episode and share it on a social media platform. That is such a blessing to Katie and myself. We're really grateful that you take the time to not only encourage us, but to help get the podcast out to more people. So thank you for doing that. Now, Who is Dr. Sean McDowell? Well, I'm going to read some parts of his biography, and then, of course, you're going to hear more from the man himself here in just a moment. Dr. Sean McDowell is a gifted communicator with a passion for equipping the church, and in particular, young people, to make the case for the Christian faith. Sean still teaches one high school Bible class, which helps give him exceptional insight into the prevailing culture so he can impart his observations poignantly to fellow educators, pastors, and parents alike. In 2008, he received the Educator of the Year Award for San Capistrano, California. The Association of Christian Schools International awarded exemplary exemplary status to his apologetics training. Sean is listed among the top 100 apologists. He earned a Ph.D. in apologetics and worldview studies from Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in 2014. Boy, are you guys just loving hearing me read off this biography? It's probably pretty fun to hear me struggle like this. I will continue. Sean is married to his sweetheart Stephanie, and they've been married for 23 years. They live in San Capistrano, California, with their three children. Sean also played college basketball at Biola Biola University, and was the captain of the team his senior year, on which and on this team they went this this particular team went 30 and seven during the season that he was a captain. So I'd say he was a pretty good captain, not a bad record, 30 and seven. Okay. You know what? It's going to be better for everybody if we just hear from the man himself. So enjoy this podcast interview with Dr. Sean McDowell.
1: The Now That We're A Family Podcast. Well, here we
0: are, Dr. Sean McDowell. Thank you for taking the time to do this uh, today. I know I've been greatly looking forward to this conversation. I enjoy your content, have enjoyed your content for some time. And so I'm really excited that I'm able to talk to you today. You're going to bring so much value and insight to our audience. I already gave a quick introduction as to who you are, what you're doing, which is many things I should say. Uh, But I want to know in your own words, you know, when you bump into an old friend, what do you, what do you tell them you're doing these days? You know, who, what's, what's Dr. McDowell up to? Well, Elijah, thanks for having me.
1: I'm not going to lie. I was hoping your wife was the host. I'm just kidding. Just giving you a hard time. Had to jump on that one. The two of you do an awesome job together. Uh, What a wonderful ministry here. Gosh, when I see old friends, uh, I'll typically just say, because many of them aren't Christians, I'll just say, hey, I'm a professor. A professor of what? Theology. And the conversation is off and run. Now, there's probably not too many old friends who don't know what I do to a degree. I mean, they see it, YouTube, Instagram, whatever. We kind of track with each other. And they're probably not surprised, having known me in high school, that uh, I teach apologetics, do a lot of stuff for parents, uh, and just kind of touch on some of the thorny, most important cultural issues of our day with a heart towards students and just helping parents pass on their
0: faith to the next generation. Well, wow, what a cool thing. And I know that so many listeners and myself, I'll just speak for myself. That's just such a desire of my heart. You know, I was blessed with Christian parents, Christian grandparents, and I come from this legacy of faith. And I know that I want to see my children's children walking in faith and be able to celebrate that with them. But you talked about, you know, when you were in high school, this was something that, or you mentioned that it wouldn't surprise your friends now because they knew you in high school. So you brought, you were brought up in a Christian environment. What was that like? You know, where were you born? Was Christianity something that was just second nature to you or was something that you kind of over time had to discover and grab for yourself?
1: Yeah. If some of your viewers recognize uh, the name of my father, Josh McDowell, that would probably answer a lot of questions about my backdrop. If they don't, that's totally fine. But in some ways, he's probably one of the most influential Christian leaders through his speaking and through his books over the past last half century or so. Some of his books like Evidence Demands a Verdict and Morton Carpenter, just millions of copies worldwide. And so he's been a missionary defending the Christian faith. Now, he didn't raised me in the sense of like, son, you have to believe this and you got to be an apologist. Never did that. Focused on building relationships with us, modeled this kind of faith for us. Uh, would engage us in a lot of conversations and certainly mentor us in spiritual things, but never did my dad say, son, you should be an apologist. Hmm. You should write a book like me, which I appreciated. I think he allowed me to kind of discover it for myself, so to speak, We also grew up in a small town in the mountains of San Diego called Julian, famous for apple pies and famous for gold mines. So it was a small town kind of in the middle of nowhere. So it wasn't like growing up in a church where you're just surrounded by people. If your dad is the pastor that have all these expectations on you, I was able to be at least somewhat protected and hidden from having a dad who's so influential as he is.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. You just, you grew up with knowing him as dad, which is a pretty cool thing. And so that he was able to have that relationship with you. And I have to say, I have been to Julian, California, and I have gotten gotten the apple pie. Yeah, I was, I mean, when you drive from San Diego over to Borrego Springs, it's a a logical stop, you know? So I've been there. Anyways, going back to your childhood, because you talked about your, and, and you have to say too. You can take credit for a lot of those. I mean, you've written a plethora of books, and you mentioned evidence that demands a verdict. You were a co-author with your father on that, were you not? Well, so he first wrote that
1: in 1972. Okay. And his story was, just really briefly, he grew up with an alcoholic father in a small town in Michigan. My dad was severely sexually abused by someone who lived on their farm. And this is the 1940s. Nobody talked about this in the 80s or 90s, let alone the 40s. And uh, his older sister took her own life. I mean, really a tragic, painful, uh, just childhood growing up. Set out to disprove Christianity because some Christians challenged him when he was a college age, had a full scholarship to law school and had the funds to travel around the world, gather the evidence proving Christianity is false. And this is before there were any popular books on apologetics. It was like Francis Schaeffer, C.S. Lewis, and almost nobody else and uh so he ended up being convinced that it was true just transformed his life able to forgive his father see his father come to Christ offer forgiveness to the man who even sexually abused him powerfully enough so I grew up with this just really influential uh remarkable man of conviction and he just modeled that for me in the way he lived now in college I went through a period of doubt this is now in the mid 90s, and people are starting to use this thing called the internet. And, you know, there was no Google, but we're searching on blogs. And I discovered that I don't even remember how, but I'm sitting in my college dorm and I find that some of the atheist web began responding to my dad's book that you mentioned, Evidence Chapter by Chapter. Hmm. And it was really unsettling to me, Elijah. It was the first time I heard from doctors and lawyers and historians saying the Bible has contradictions. uh, Evolution is true. Jesus never lived. I'm like, what? And it rocked me. And so I went to my dad. I was like, dad, I want to believe, but I just got a lot of questions. I'm not sure that I'm convinced this is true. And he said to me, he goes, he goes, son, I think that's great. And I remember thinking, did you hear anything that I just said? He said, you know, as best I can remember it, you cannot live on my convictions. You've got to seek after what is true. And if you seek after what is true, I'm confident you'll keep believing in Jesus. And, you know, your mom and I will love you no matter what. And I don't want to over dramatize that. But that was a very significant piece in my life of saying, what do I believe? Why do I believe it? And so, you know, two decades after that, maybe more. Yeah, about two decades after that, it was. My father and I updated his classic book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, together. I think it was like the fourth edition of the book.
0: Got it. Okay. That makes more sense. Thank you for explaining that. You know, you talked about this research, the, and this, uh, maybe this propensity to look for, I mean, to look for evidence, you know, that that demands a verdict. And, you were, you grew up with a father who was an apologist. He was a deep researcher. It sounds like you inherited a lot of that, you know, I guess propensity to research to find the facts. And you already mentioned some of the core tenets of the faith, you know, Jesus Jesus Christ himself, you know, the historicity of him, his life and death is his resurrection. And you've spoken so much about that, you know, just proof and evidence of the resurrection, which is so helpful. But was there a time in your life where, cause I mean, I think many people have known some of these facts and they might even yeah. believe them to be factually true but then you you hear the heart knowledge versus the head knowledge was there a point where you're thinking boy this is transforming my heart this is something where i know this to be true historically or factually but i want but then all of a sudden you're convicted in your heart you're thinking man this this apply like his death and burial resurrection it applies to me what was that like yeah there was
1: i would say in college and this is kind of Following up on this kind of doubting, questioning period that I went through, it was kind of this season of maybe a year or two kind of working this out in my heart and my mind. I remember reading a book by Henry Nowen, who's a late Catholic priest. It's called The Return of the Prodigal Son. And he goes to visit this painting by Rembrandt of the Prodigal Son that I think is like eight feet by 11 feet in the hermitage uh, over in Eastern Europe in, in Russia. And he's sitting there thinking that he was always the prodigal son. And somebody says to me, he goes, no, Henry, you're the older son. And that was transformative for him. And I'm reading this thinking, oh, my goodness, that's true for me. I always thought growing up because we have these dramatic stories of people like my father's story or people who come out of a gang or people who lose a limb in war, people who like come out of prison and turn to Jesus in their last moment. I was always like, guy, there's got to be some dramatic story before God can use me. And then I realized kind of reading that and some other things in my life was like, holy cow, I am the older son in the Luke 15 story in the sense where he did everything right. He was dutiful. The father goes out to the younger son. But he also goes to the older son who's in the field working. And yet, ironically, the older son didn't understand the heart of the father. So I think it was a sense of me realizing, okay, I didn't do all the big sins, but I am so prideful because I think I'm better than all these prodigal sons and others who do. There was a sense where God just broke me and humbled me. And realized that i was living a path of legalism and also needed
0: god's grace wow what a cool story and you know when i think about being a father um i don't want that dramatic testimony for my children Mm -hmm. that the the testimony of man i was addicted to drugs Mm -hmm. i was you know i was hit rock bottom with all these with all these sins and then I came to Christ. However, I also don't want them to have this legalistic heart to think, mm-hmm. hey, me, because I've abstained from, as you kind of categorize them, these, these air quotes, big sins, you know, that might be categorized that way within Christianity, I somehow deserve, you know, more of God's grace or his His love. And so how do you kind of view that with parents saying, boy, of course we don't, we want to guard our kids. We want to protect our children from some of these da- the dangers of the worlds and um and the desires of the flesh but you also want them to see man we need a savior the sin of the heart like you said the legalism this rebellion innate th- this in our heart how do you teach that and, and what's a, some advice you could give to parents with that well one of
1: my encouragement is we've got to learn to be able to let go and god and let god work in his timing and in his way when my kids were younger I could kind of control the narrative, what they believed, where they went. As they got into high school, I saw my kids making choices and realizing I can't stop them from making certain bad choices. I can love them, I can care for them, but I don't have the control I once had. And there's a sense we've got to let go and just trust God through this. Hmm. Now, the reality is you can be the best parent on the planet And your kids can walk away Mm -hmm. that can happen Mm -hmm. so part of letting go is realizing that my identity is not wrapped up in my kids performance and in their faith now that's hard to do especially if you have a public platform of any fashion like yourself with a podcast me being a speaker and the other things that i do but it's hard for any of us yeah so in a sense of just letting go and saying god All I want to do is be a faithful parent. Hmm. And what does that look like? That means loving your spouse as best as you can. That means building an intimate, close relationship with your kids, where you teach them truth, but you also teach them grace Hmm. and you love them through this process. I'm old enough to have a lot of my friends see their kids go through prodigal son type seasons, and that is painful. And that hurts. But when they come home and understand God's grace, wow, that is worth it all. So I guess in some, all we can do is focus on what we can do. Yeah, And that's what? Love God, love our spouse, build relationships with our kids, and do our best to model and teach them biblical truth. And you know what? Frankly, I think sometimes maybe God lets our kids go through that season to humble us as well.
0: Wow. Wow. What a, what a great way to think of that. I've heard you talk about this in particular and building relationship with your children. You know, I think even in a book that I've really enjoyed of yours, I I always forget the title, but it's so the next generation will know. Is that how the title reads? Yeah, that's right. Fantastic. And I really appreciate that because the emphasis is on just this, it's passing on this faith, it's passing on our beliefs so that our children can then walk in it. But you talk a lot about this and a few things that you go over, you say, um, how can i pass on my faith to my kids and it says a warm relationship with a father you you share some stats and some data that goes into maybe like the most defining factor in children walking out in their faith is a warm you use that word warm relationship with their father now why do you think that is and what does that mean a warm relationship with your father
1: so this comes from a study by a, a professor at USC, University of Southern California, by the name of Vern Bankston. And he's done a 35-year study with four generations, kids to great-grandparents, 3,500 people. And it's all about faith transmission. And he published this in a book. I think now it's maybe a decade old. And it was with Oxford University Press. I think the title was just Faith and Families. And they were just looking sociologically at what factors are present when faith is passed on from one generation to the next. And statistically speaking, the most significant factor was a, quote, warm relationship with a father. Now, it's one thing for me to say that. It's another thing for a study at a secular institution to use the adjective warm. So now they did show that things that rock a kid's faith are things like divorce. There is a negative correlation with divorce and a kid's faith. They said positively grandparents are very significant in the transmission of faith. Now, their point was not that moms are not important. But let's face it, the the man tends to be the father more of a wild card, statistically speaking, than the mother. The mother Mm -hmm. is there when the child is born. A, there's no guarantee that the father is. There's this motherly instinct built in. And so for whatever reason, and we could speculate on what that reason is. Maybe it's something about our earthly fathers in some way incarnating or representing our heavenly fathers. I think there's some truth that we see God, the father through our relationship with our earthly father. I think there's some truth to that, but the bottom line is the most significant thing in passing on the faith is building a warm relationship with your kids. And that means there's a big responsibility on dads
0: yeah i mean that is a big responsibility and i even go back to your story you talked about being in college and having this crisis of faith and the fact that you were on the the type of terms you were with your father to be able to have that conversation speaks volumes because how often do you get into high school or you get into college and maybe your father isn't the first person <laughs> you think to call when you're in a, in a moment of crisis and when i think of a warm relationship of course The character of the father is going to play a factor in that, right? So a father that's not, you know, um, abusive and he's not, you know, full of anger and, and things like that. But then also just this time, like you can't replace time spent with your children. Is that something that you experienced with your father? And again, like certain seasons will lend to this being more, I guess, doable than other seasons. But was your father, did you experience this carefree time with him where you would just do life? Yeah, it's really interesting you bring it
1: back to this because a number of years ago, I asked my dad, I said, okay, dad, what were you really thinking when I told you I was doubting my faith? Because he seems so positive. And anyone who knows my dad, it's like the glass is 99% full. He's an optimist. And I think because of the pain in his background, he just has so much resilience and character that he was just positive. And I was like, okay, dad, what was really going on in your mind? Even as you maybe pretended like he had it all together. He goes, "Honestly, I was really I was not that worried." I said, "Why?" He said because of the level of relationship that you and I had and still have. Hmm. I thought, "Wow, he was living that out." Yeah. So, my my dad probably traveled 50% of the time if I had to gauge it. And there's a lot of times that I missed him. And I wished that he was there. There were times I remember thinking, "Oh, I just want to shoot hoops with my dad." So, there were times that I missed him, hmm. but he was intentionally active and present and involved in our lives. He would take us on trips where he went. He would carve out time for things that are important for us to be there. Hmm. you know. And the the older I get, especially as I understand his background and his past that had none of that, I just have so much grace for him doing his best with the opposite example, even though as a parent, I might do things a little bit differently. I just always think of the passage that talks about love covers a multitude of sins. And it's not that there was sin that was there, but the sense of like, when we look back at our parents, all of us reflect upon the good and we all reflect and say, you know, there's probably some things I might do differently. And what do we do? We have grace for those areas where we say, you know what? Maybe my parents fall short. Why do we have grace? Because we're going to fall short as parents. Yeah. And we want our kids to extend the same grace to us. But the last thing I'll say is I've heard my dad say many times, and I think he's right. He said, kids spell love, T-I-M-E. Hmm. And he's right. There's not
0: quality over quantity. Hmm. I think it's both. Wow. Wow. I, yeah, I like that. And I think that's probably got to be encouraging for many fathers that maybe they're in a career that does demand a lot of their time. They're in a field that does have them traveling for large chunks of time, but to know that you can with, with quality time, with that intentional time, really make a lot of gain in your relationship with your children. That's gotta be really cool to hear that. Also, you know, you mentioned shooting hoops. I know your son, you play basketball. You're at least one of your, do you have, you have one son and two daughters? Is that, how is it, or two sons I and one daughter? Do. I have a
1: 19 year old son. Okay. Who's playing basketball in the fall of Biola, and then I
0: have a 16 year old daughter and a 10 year old son. Okay, great. Now you mentioned that, and I'm just going to touch on this. You know, I think of the simplicity of activities that you can do with with mm. with your kiddos, and the fact that you play basketball now. Your son's playing basketball. Of course, it doesn't have to be that sport. It doesn't have to be a particular instrument or a specific hobby that you do with your with your kiddo. But how cool is it that? I mean, especially with with boys, this is just a thing. They like doing things. You know, I've got boys. It, they are active. They are active guys that want to be busy. And when you see that as a father, you can play into that. You can say, hey, I'm going to do this with you. And is that something that you kind of were intentional with your parenting? You know, not, not saying, hey, son, you have to play basketball, but just doing something with them as they were young and as they've grown? So great question. A couple of thoughts.
1: Uh, one is, kids tend to follow the passions of their parents it's interesting in the Shema when it says love Lord God with all your heart your soul your mind and your strength before it talks about fixing our kids so to speak and how to pass on the faith it says love God why because kids tend to follow the passions of their parents I never told Mm -hmm. my son he should play hoops but I love the game I follow the NBA I like March Madness uh, I played in college. My wife did too. I just love the game of basketball. So he picked that up. Now my daughter plays volleyball. Great. In fact, she was kind of like everybody in this family plays basketball. I want to do something different. I was like, great, but kids, you know, my son loves superheroes. Interestingly enough. So do I like, I just see my kids loving some of the things we've got to ask ourselves first, what do we love? Cause our kids are watching and they catch that. Now with that said, I remember meeting a young man one time who looking, he spent a lot of time with his dad, but looking back, he's like, you know what? It was always on his terms. Hmm. It was always what he wanted to do. And that made him kind of question some of his childhood in a way that was kind of painful. Now I bring my kids when I can on speaking things. I'm like, Hey, let's watch this together. But I try to also say what's important to my kids. And spend time doing things with them that they enjoy, that's important to them. We've got to do both.
0: Wow, what a cool insight. Yeah, I mean, on one level, it's 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 crazy convicting and also kind of empowering to think about this influence that we have in our children's appetites and their desires. You know, some of the things that I am going to have an inclination to doing to towards my sons will inherit. My daughter will inherit. Yeah. And then on the flip side, also realizing, man, I want to meet them where they're at. I want to get on their level, so to speak. And, and especially when I'm, I'm a father of young children, mm. by getting on their level, that means I feel like literally getting on their level. It's crazy how much it yeah. means to my kids when I literally get on the ground with them, you know, and you just mm. see them, them light up. And then obviously as time goes on, that's going to change. That's going to look differently. So you are a father. You were, you were raised by a father that was intentional in his faith what are some things that really stand out to you in the differences of maybe challenges for Christians from your high school years to now your children that are in high school? Um, like, Because times, times are, I'm sure, have changed. There's differences, there's different challenges, technology's changed, all those things have changed. And so when you're parenting now, do you find yourself going back and being like, okay, this was different then. How do I now apply these same truths these same principles the word of the lord endures forever like all of these truths have not changed but a lot of the challenges have changed a lot of the uh you know attacks have changed on the faith so what does that look like for you and, and what's some words of wisdom you could give to parents well the older you get
1: the greater the arrow was that you grew up in it's just human nature so i like romanticize the 80s and 90s basketball like so I try to guard against being that voice to my kids. That's like, it was uphill in the snow, both ways, suck it up. Like that just doesn't build bridges, but it is helpful sometimes to just compare and contrast to give them some perspective. And that's true for my parents as well, for their grandparents, how culture shifts. So when I think about my kids, there's a shift in the medium and also a shift in the message. So a shift in the medium, you know, I guess during my day people were deeply concerned with like MTV and the music videos and and also music that was coming through the radio and certain movies in Hollywood. That was the concern and rightly so. Now, of course, it's through smartphones where everybody has a voice to reach to your kids on TikTok, on Snapchat, on YouTube, on Netflix endless information just one click away that is actually looking for our kids and trying to change the way they think about certain things so there's the medium that you have to have certain boundaries and also help teach our kids to navigate second would be the message itself and I think especially in particular areas of sexuality are just dominating our culture I mean you know in the 90s it was like roughly when I was in high school and junior high, you know, there were rumors about somebody who was gay. It was kind of an issue that was out there. And if you were a Christian, it was like, for the most part, people respected that. They didn't do it, but they're like, that's cool. I'm glad you you follow Jesus and believe that about marriage. That's wonderful. Now, you know somebody personally who views the world this way. You know, I saw a study that recently said maybe one in four Gen Zers identify in some fashion on the lgbtq spectrum one in four now if that's even close to being true that's a personal issue and they're told if you don't believe and embrace this and tweet about it actually not really tweet high school kids aren't on twitter or junior high kids post something on social media in favor of it you are ignorant and hateful and homophobic So that's an area where the message itself has changed. Now, there's certain, maybe this would be helpful. I think about in terms of timeless and timely issues. And this is how I lay it out in the book that you were mentioning earlier. Timeless issues, does God exist? Is Jesus God? Is the Bible true? Is God the creator? Timely issues like say critical race theory, LGBTQ relationships, the environment, immigration, and the timeless truths don't change across generation, but there's certain timely issues that look different and are expressed differently because of technology
0: across the generations. Wow. Yeah. Thanks for saying that like that. And, and, you know, even when you talk about these timely issues, a lot of them, or actually I would say all of them, the ones that you mentioned, Result from a distortion of those timeless issues, you know, an understanding of God's design, an understanding of sin, an understanding of Christ and what he came to do. So, how are you equipping your kids, not just your children, because you're also teaching, you know, you're teaching college kids, you're even still teaching some high school kids, I think, as well. How are you equipping them to engage in conversations about their faith in a culture that, like you already said, you get shut down now? just by saying I'm a Christian because Christianity has been labeled hateful. It's been labeled you know, something that's up. up you're, you're aggressively opposing all of these ideologies that are so important to people's identity. So how are you equipping your children and children that you're teaching to have these conversations in an effective way and not just you know, get shut down and cause more conflict?
1: Well, a couple things. Number one is I try to model it for them how to do so. This is a lot of what I do on my, for example, even on my YouTube channel, as I've had people on one guy describes himself as an atheist New York media elite. I've had a lady who described herself as the OG lesbian YouTube creator. Uh, I've had people on the left and the right, theologically speaking, and I just listen and I find common ground and try to push back in a respectful way that fosters conversation. So I'm not threatened by people who see the world differently than I do. So I just try to model this. And even off air in certain relationships that I don't even talk about publicly, my kids know that I'm having these kinds of conversations. That's one. Uh, Second is I try to model this with my kids. So I'll give you an example this morning of how I made breakfast for my family and my son who's 10 sits down and he goes, dad, he's 10, keep this in mind. He goes, does Satan know that he's going to lose? If so, why does he keep fighting? Hmm. And my wife jumped in and she's like, maybe he's just so arrogant that he thinks he's going to win. And I was like, yeah, I don't buy it. And like, we're just going back and forth, modeling disagreement, caring about the issues. That's one. A second thing, I I don't know when you're going to air this. So I apologize if I date it. You can edit this out if you have to. But as this morning, there's kind of this controversy that's been going on about The Chosen and having an LGBTQ flag on set. And I try to think through what kind of response should I give? Because I see this thing flaring up and getting more intense, more divided. And so I thought through, I'm going to make a video response to this And my take very quickly was just something to the effect of Elijah. I said, uh, hey, to the creators of The Chosen who put a flag on set, first off, thank you for being a part of a show that my family cherishes. You're representing the characters that shape the way we want to live our lives. Thanks for sacrificing to creatively bring the story of Jesus to the screen. Now, if you think, that Christians are motivated by hate, ignorance, and homophobia, I wanna invite you to sit down with the very people who fund your show and who watch your show and maybe hear why they believe as they believe that Jesus holds on sex, love, and relationships. I'm a professor. I'd sit down with you anytime and hear your story and perspective if you'd simply hear mine, Hmm. as long as the focus can be on the person of Jesus. So I scripted this out and I'm just sharing it with my wife as my son is there listening and we're just talking about it. Mm. Now, some people watch you this and the point was I want my wife's feedback, but I kind of wanted my son to hear his dad cares about this and how I think about the world. Cause he's picking these things up. Mm. So even if you're like, I'm not on social media, I don't want to weigh into these issues. Just ask your kids, Hey, at breakfast or dinner, there's this huge controversy about whatever the topic is what do you think? How as Christians do you think we can and should respond well? Hmm. And so you model it and then just engage your kids in conversation and try to help them think differently.
0: Hmm. Wow, that's such a great illustration to be able to you know give that to your kiddos at, in real time. And um, yeah, it's it's crazy. I think I definitely would identify with that group of Christians that thought at one point, "Hey, I'll just kind of keep my head down. I don't want to address these issues." Yeah. Maybe in ignorance, I thought it'll pass. There'll be the next issue that that comes up. And all, all of a sudden here we are, you know, you to date the episode again, it's it's the month of June, you know, that's been somehow designated by somebody sometime at some point pride month, you know. So the LGBTQ flag is is waving in every which direction. And maybe three years ago, I would have said, hey, whatever, you know, put my head down, focus on, focus on Jesus, focus on my personal walk, focus on my profession, you know, walking out in these, in these godly attributes. I don't need to address these things. And then here I am the the voice of that movement is only getting louder and it's getting more, more and more abrasive and Mm -hmm. oppressive and aggressive. And I've got children now that are being raised up, and they're asking me these questions. And uh, as late to the game as I am, I'm finally saying, "Okay, you know what? I need to engage." And I think a lot of parents are seeing that. A lot of Christians that maybe had that propensity to put their head down and kind of try to seek to live a peaceably li- peaceable life, you know, amongst all men uh, and not to cause much conflict, are saying, "Oh, no, it's at my front door now." You know, like it's there's there's not there's not an option to not engage anymore. And so. In seeing that, where are places that we can start? I know you've got a great book recommendation. You've had somebody on your podcast recently that talked about, I think, um, is it gender and genesis or genesis of gender? Mm. You know, because this can be a really overwhelming topic, especially when you're a guy like me that's been trying his best to ignore it for the last you know, 10 years thinking that maybe it would go away. And now I'm trying to jump in and say, man, I want to have a biblical perspective on this. I want to have a Christian perspective on this. And I want to be able to articulate that to my children and to uh, everybody else, you know, in my community. So where are some places parents can start, uh, you know, in trying to equip themselves and so doing their kids? Elijah, you are exactly right. We cannot evade this
1: issue. Are you going to use preferred pronouns or not in personal relationships in work everybody's got to think about that are you gonna go to a same-sex wedding or not at some point if you haven't been invited I hope you will because that means you're in a relationship with somebody who sees the world differently it's impossible to escape these issues and put our heads down and this is more so true for you because you've got a public platform and you're speaking out if we don't speak on these issues we actually do a disservice to the body of Christ because it's like we're trying to ignore it when everybody else is just trying to keep their head above ground. Mm. So there's a range of different resources. I mean, you mentioned the book So the Next Generation Will Know could help. I don't specifically talk about LGBTQ issues in there. It's more for parenting, pass on the faith, building relationships, connecting with your kids kind of approach. Uh, more specifically on issues of sex and gender. I do have a number of interviews on YouTube, probably five or six on the topic of Transgender and identities. And I have some more coming up. I just did one on stories of detransition, what the scientific research really shows. Posted that earlier this week. So you just plug my name in and LGBTQ, those will come up. You just want to find trusted voices who you know will bring good content. So people like Christopher Yuan, Y U A N, has written a couple wonderful books on this. His lectures are incredible. Uh, I would say the Colson Center, John Stone Street has done some great stuff and they're working on a curriculum right now addressing some of these very issues. Uh, So find the key issues and then maybe connect with some other adults in your area. If you don't know how to navigate this, call somebody up and just say, let's talk about this. What do I do? You know, the Bible talks a ton about just getting wisdom uh, from others. We can't navigate this alone. So Hmm that's probably where I would start. If you're in a church, that's not talking about these issues. I went to my pastor a few years ago and said, Hey, we've got to talk about this stuff. And so we led a seminar at our church. You could bring an expert in to talk and parents showed up and they were hungry to ask questions and be equipped in this way. So now is not the time to run from this issue. It's the opposite. Let's run into it, but Mm -hmm. do so with truth and with wisdom. And hopefully, not hopefully, but with a spirit of love towards
0: our neighbors. Yeah, no, yeah. Thanks, thank you for that. And that is encouraging to hear. And I'm so grateful for all the resources that you put out. I mean, for free, just the, the plethora, like you said, on YouTube, on Instagram, your podcast. And I feel like that in and of itself is equipping the body. And, and I want to point as many people to that as I can. You know, when it comes to parenting, you kind of, I guess, contrast the difference between entertaining your kids versus training them, you know, or kind of distracting them versus training them. And you've even shared some stories about how, you know, if your kids are interested in a movie, you say, okay, I'll I'll go watch this movie with you, but we're going to talk about what this movie communicated. What was this movie saying was true? You know, how was it posturing the the parents relationship with each other what was the overall message about this movie and that's one example but can you give some other examples on training your children rather than simply just kind of entertaining or distracting them yeah let me flesh out the example you're talking about because
1: this was gosh five years ago and my son was 14 the movie uh, bohemian rhapsody came out about uh the rock band queen mm. and it was pg-13 so I knew it was going to have some objectionable content but it's not R and so my son was just interested in seeing it. I said, okay, Betty, I'll, I'll make you a deal. Now, I did a little research on it ahead of time just to make sure. I said, hey, buddy, I'll take you to see this with a friend, and I'll spend $100 on tickets and popcorn. If, when we're done, you just sit down and talk with me about it. I want to know what you see and what you think about it. He goes, sure, Dad. So we go to the movie, come back, walk inside. He sits down at the dinner table and says, okay, let's talk. That was probably half an hour. I literally just asked him questions. I said, hey, buddy, did you enjoy the movie? What'd you think about it? Did you have a favorite scene? Did anything surprise you in the movie? Is there anything in the movie that is Christians we can agree with and celebrate? Are there any Christian themes in this? And then I said, was there anything in the movie that gave you pause that you think contradicted a Christian worldview? Mm -hmm. Were there any times you felt like this show was preaching at you Mm -hmm. and in relationship just taught him to see this movie through a Christian lens. So I try to parent just by asking my kids a lot of questions and listening and drawing out what they think about things, using questions to probe further. So, you know, Jesus, we have record of Jesus asking 339 questions. Hmm. Paul asked in his letters, 262. God communicates in the garden with Adam and Eve by questions. Who told you that you were naked so hmm. the very god who designed us communicates to us through questions now jesus did tell stories because we remember stories and relate to stories i share stories with my kids but he also asked questions so that's one tool to think about and to utilize and sometimes as parents like this morning i can imagine somebody freaking out going holy cow i don't know how to answer." whether you know why Satan keeps fighting if he you know already knows he's gonna lose here's all you have to say and this is actually what I said to my son I said that's a great question buddy I want to affirm that asking questions are great and welcome in the Christian fold I said you know I do have some thoughts on that but I'd love to know what you think. If you are going to guess an answer, what do you think? Now, honestly, at that moment, we got distracted and he left and had to take him to camp. So it wasn't this wonderful, shining light moment, but that's how I try to respond. I go, that's a really good question. If you were to guess an answer, now a kid might say, well, I don't know. And I'd say, well, if you did know, what do you think? And then it's amazing how many times they'll actually give an answer. So I want to listen. I want to draw it out of them and say, you know, let me give you one thought on this and then you tell me what you think. Hmm. That's it. Yeah. So foster conversation, ask good questions in the context of a relationship and little moments here and there. And if you model it, like, look, here's, here's the bottom line. If you want to pass on your faith, what the data shows, if there were a formula, there's not, here's what it shows. Number one, you got to model a faith to your kids. If you don't model it, it doesn't matter what you say. Second, build close warm intimate relationships with your kids hmm. and third engage them in spiritual conversation natural conversation not lectures conversation yeah. that's the effective way to do it. so I'm always looking for ways to ask questions and engage them as the older my son gets because I've done this when I was younger we now have sometimes really thoughtful, substantive conversations, and I absolutely love
0: it. Wow. What a what a great thing to think about. And, you know, when I think about asking those questions, I feel like my dad did such a good job. You know, he, would, he was the dad that took, you know, he was convicted, okay, I need to lead my family spiritually, but he felt ill-equipped. You know, he wasn't a theologian. He wasn't this guy that had this deep reservoir of biblical knowledge. But he's like, okay, well, I guess I can sit around the dinner table and, and, and read the proverb of the day. And we'd read it, and he would simply ask, you know, you know, Elisha, what do you think that means? What what do you think that means when we read a proverb? And you just get our wheels turning. And from a young age, like you said, those spiritual conversations were started. And of course, my father modeled it. And, and I like how you pointed out a while back, the fir- like the first, "Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength." It's so easy as parents to 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 think past our own. Our own faith, our own walk with God and say, well, I want to, I want to ensure my children. I want to make sure I want to pass this on. I want to be, I want to guarantee that they're going to be saved. And I love, like you said, Hey, wait, start first and for Where are you at? You know, where are you at right now in in your faith? And then having that warm relationship and then asking those great questions is really encouraging to think about. Also, you know, in, in regards to the movie, this, I feel like it's so fun to see my kids starting to realize Man, there's always a narrative that's trying to be, yeah. that, that is going to be preached, whether you're reading a book or whether you're, um, you know, watching a movie. It's funny how I even realized, because I'm a sports fan, and I didn't realize, you know, watching sports isn't neutral. You think, oh, it's just a game, but then every time, you know, there's, com- there's commercial breaks, what are the commercials communicating to you about truth? You know, what are they yep. communicating about being a father, you know, are they, are they saying, oh, it's lame to be a father and you know, kids are a burden and a hassle. It's a common, it's a common narrative, right? In, in popular media. And, uh, or you even come back when the air comes back on and, and, and Joe Buck or Trey Aikman or whatever, they're coming back on and they're announcing the following week's schedule for whatever network they're on. There is a narrative there constantly. Sure. And I love being able to identify that first and foremost for myself because We're being fed something, you know, it's, it's affecting the way I'm viewing the world. And is that, is that aligned with God's word or is it contrary to it? And then being able to have those conversations with your kids. So I'm really glad you brought up that example Mm. because it's, it's happening nonstop. There isn't just this like, okay, you can turn your brain off now, you know, moment. It's, it's like, no, there's always a narrative. and We need to be able to engage with that narrative. That's so good. You know, you mentioned something that your dad used to say, I, I don't know if this is the exact quote, but a problem well-defined is half solved. I think is some that, that he would go so you mentioned that in one of your books when you look at kind of the problem of this greater lgbtq movement you know you think okay is it are you able to put your finger because of course this is this is half the problem right and engaging everybody says well there's nuance you know there's complexity to this everybody's story is different and and while there is truth in all of that are you able to say you know what if we boil things down there's a distortion on how people are viewing men and and woman or is there a distortion how people are viewing god or or creation are do you are you able to do that or is that not something you can do that with
1: you know the idea that a a a solution is found you know once you've defined the problem it's kind of half solved so to speak yes that's one of the few lessons my father got from his dad my grandfather Hmm. that he's passed on to me and i think about that if your car runs out of gas it doesn't do any good to rotate the tires Mm -hmm identify the problem so when we think about this larger LGBTQ conversation deep beneath it are good things that all human beings across the political and moral and religious divide are seeking many in the LGBTQ community if not all are seeking the same things you and I are which is love and belonging and identity these are human searches But there's a narrative within this movement that twists the good and beautiful truth that God has built into the world and built into our bodies. So at the heart of it is a good desire and a good yearning, but expressed and experienced in a way that doesn't bring real human flourishing. That's the heart of it. And that's really any issue we look at in scripture, right? That is defined as sin is missing the mark. Well, that implies there is a mark Hmm. and there is a truth, but we've missed it. That's as a whole what I see in the LGBTQ community and not just them. I'm not just picking on them. We could talk about ways that I see that within the Christian community, in different fashions. I'm just responding because that's where the heart of the question was. Yeah. So if we lead and engage in this community with just sin and corruption and lies, that doesn't get to the heart of how so many people are experiencing their lives. They don't see it that way. So I wonder if there's a more effective way to engage many in this community. Now there certainly is a time for a prophetic voice to call out sin as we see it. I'm not saying there's not a place for that. I'm talking about in our personal relationships, let's find common ground, let's see the good, but maybe try to redirect it and say, the deeper desires of your heart are actually found in knowing Jesus and living in light of his reality. And then letting that transform the way we approach relationships, that's, the. You know, as Augustine talked about, you know, the heart is just yearning and seeking until it finds its rest in you. Hmm.
0: Yeah. And I wonder if if you think that there can be like a different maybe approach or tactic when you talk about the the movement in general, you say the LGBTQ movement or agenda or whatever however you want to phrase it. And the way you talk about that or confront it. Versus you already talked about, you know, people that you know personally in your own sphere, because uh, that's something that I've found, you know, I guess some some contradiction in where Christians are painted as being bigots or they're painted as being hateful towards these uh, these groups. And yet I don't see people in a personal way doing that. So what are some ways that we can do that speaking collectively with truth, with confidence of course, you want to have real relationships for, with people in your life. Like you said, everybody knows somebody that's mm. identifying right now and they're probably engaging sure. with them on some level. And you want to be truthful and loving, but then you yep. also want to talk to your kids maybe about the general movement. Okay. Because the flags or the commercials, or the advertisements, that's, right. that's not your friend or that's not your neighbor. You know, that's not your neighbor. That's, you know, married. It's not a lesbian. That's married to another lady. And and my my kids and I can have that conversation. We can talk to them. We engage with them and we kind of are able to be very effective in that narrative where we're able to control the narrative right there. And they know we're Christians and they know where we stand. But then when you feel the agenda being pushed on you on a more, like I said, like these campaigns, is that talked about in a different way within your home?
1: So there's two things at play when the narrative that Christians are bigoted hateful homophobic comes up one is the message itself and there is a sense where no matter how kind and gracious Christians are our message is offensive about identity and about marriage and I'm not going to soften that so I've had affirming Christians and people outside the Christian fold regardless of how kind I am Tell me that it's my message and my theology, my position itself that causes harm. So we have no control over changing the message if we want to be faithful to Jesus. But a lot of the charge about Christians being bigoted and hateful and homophobic is also due to how we conduct ourselves. And we can do a lot better of not compromising truth, but showing kindness and humility and graciousness with our neighbors. So years ago at the Evangelical Theological Society, where a bunch of scholars get together and analyze texts in the most nuanced way, it's a fun place for scholars to go. I remember this presentation I heard from Daryl Bach, who's a wonderful New Testament teacher at Dallas Theological Seminary. He said, the narrative is that Christians are bigoted, hateful, homophobic. How do we change that? Is when somebody hears that and sees that, And their next thought is their neighbor, Joe, or Bob, or Sarah, or Elijah, or Sean, who's a Christian, but doesn't treat them that way. In other words, the solution is not top down. It's bottom up. It's just Christians reaching out to love their neighbors in the way we love everybody. I mean, Jesus was a friend of sinners. He didn't compromise truth. but somehow sinners wanted to be with him. And I asked myself the question, gosh, how can I be like Jesus, where I Don't compromise what is true. But people who know they're outside the fold of what at least Christians think, want to be with me, is that possible? Hmm. And so in many ways, it's just reaching out to people in the workplace, reaching out to people in your neighborhood and just caring for them. That's well. it, in the way you would Anybody, regardless of their identity, I had a chance to speak to this huge staff of these marriage conferences and they, you know, all around the country. And one of the heads asked me, kind of zooming to their staff, what if a gay couple comes to our conference and you had like one or two minutes to make the case for marriage? What would you do? And I said, I wouldn't. If I had two minutes with this couple, presuming they're at a conference, hopefully you're teaching from the stage what biblical marriage is and why, I just say, hey, tell me why you came. What's your experience been like? What's the big takeaway? How have Christians treated you? I said, I would want to get their contact information and build a relationship with them and then go back and debrief the conference rather than feel the need in two minutes to say, here's what marriage is, here's why you're wrong that's just not going to land with anybody. So the bottom line is let's just love our neighbors. You know, so oftentimes fear often characterizes this conversation. We as evangelicals sometimes I I try to study our culture from the outside and it feels like we're afraid of critical race theory. We're afraid of Muslim immigration. We're afraid of Postmodernist, whatever characterization is the LGBTQ community, sometimes that's our posture as a group. You know what Jesus says in 1 John 4 18? Perfect love casts out fear. Fear is self based, love is other based. So I'd love to see us just love our neighbors and care for them without compromising truth so if somebody moves into your neighborhood across the street and it's a lesbian couple that's not something to be afraid of that's an opportunity to love them thank god for that opportunity and then use it to talk to your kids what does the bible say about relationships how do we love people who see the world very differently how should we treat them what an opportunity is how i would view that
0: yeah thanks for speaking to that and and when i think of the fear it's like, man, who, who are we serving? You know, do we think our gods overall? Do you think like, you know, as your, as your son said, you know, d- Satan, he's got to know he's going to lose, right? Like we are more than conquerors through Christ. And we know in the end, God, he, he comes out victorious and we can walk in that victory. Now I think as Christians and we can do it from a place, place Amen. of love, you know, we covered a lot about the LGBTQ and it makes sense. This is the month of June, but what are some things that are kind of on, hitting your radar recently? Because something that I appreciate about your platform is you're very engaged with culture. I already said my propensity is to go read books, you know, from 400 years ago sure. and to kind of like unplug <laughs> from from culture because it's not very appealing to me. And yeah. yet it's still happening. It's, it's, it's moving forward. So what are some things that are kind of hitting your radar that you're thinking, hmm, I didn't see this coming. This might be a talking point in the in the coming days or in the coming years. Is there anything like that? Well, first off, there is some
1: wisdom from just disconnecting from the nonsense and reading books for 400 years ago. There's a lot of wisdom uh, in modeling that and doing that because there's always the next outrage for Christians to get mad about, get defensive about. And I think the more energy I expend on that stuff is less I have for my wife and less I have Mm. for my kids. And let's face it, news organizations are based upon provoking you and inciting you to anger. I don't care if it's on the right with Fox News. I don't care if it's on the left with CNN. They basically play by the same script. That's how people get retweeted. That's how YouTube video go. I'm gonna provoke, I'm gonna shock, I'm gonna get you angry. Well, the older I get, the realize I realize my energy is finite and I can only focus on so many things. So there's wisdom in what you're doing. But on the other hand, our kids are getting saturated with these kinds of issues. We have to be present. Now, for me, a big one I've been thinking about lately and probably going to do a, a, a post on soon. It's just ChatGPT, how this changes education, hmm. uh, consciousness. Hmm. I think in some ways we are seeing this transgender movement move towards transhumanism. Once we separate our identity from our bodies How far can we go reinventing what it means to be human? That's a big question. And if some of your viewers are like, I don't even know what that means, that's fine. We just gotta be willing to talk with our kids about things. What does it mean to be human? What is the soul? Will computers ever really be able to think? What does it mean we're made in God's image? These are really, really, really important questions. So that's one that's coming down the pike Uh, to deal
0: with with students wow wow thanks for speaking to that dr mcdowell thank you so much for your time i want to know you know where is it where's the best place for people to find you you know i'll link your website below your youtube channel your instagram you've got a plethora of books and resources Uh, do you do you get out and speak much or are you staying kind of local to southern california what what's your coming year looking like
1: So probably the hub is the website that you mentioned, and that has links to different social media platforms. The main ones I use are Instagram, Twitter, and I still post on TikTok because students are there, but I don't personally engage it as much as I used to. Uh, Links to my YouTube channel, which I love. That's my favorite way to try to equip people. I've got a blog that I post once or twice a month. Uh, we actually have a podcast out of biola that's weekly about 30 minutes it's called think biblically Mm -hmm. and it's always on cultural issues so i just posted a conversation i had with a lesbian and just said hey christians here's a model how to just listen and have a conversation and that's on the podcast you can just listen to it and copy it and find somebody to have that kind of conversation with Uh, it also links to my speaking schedule so i do speak a good amount at conferences and churches uh, so people can see it there. I might be coming to your area wherever people are listening from, but that's probably the hub to uh, to to track what I do.
0: Love it. Thank you so much. Well, again, thank you for taking the time. Thank you for your work in equipping the body of Christ and in, in really giving us, I guess, so many resources and tools that we can use to then engage with, with culture and with the various things that are challenging the faith right now. Thank you so much, Dr. McDowell.
1: Elijah, you don't need me to say this, but great questions. Great flow. You're doing awesome work. Uh, Keep it up. It's important. Thank you.